When last we met, I had said that we would be discussing English Bible translations today, uh, but there is just no way for me to fit all of that in. So unfortunately, we're going to have to split that into two weeks. So today we're going to talk most about the transmission of the text, um, basically how the New Testament autographs from the original writings got to us today. And then next week, we'll talk about English Bible translations, what the differences are. We'll compare a few different translations. And, uh, and I'll, we'll also be explaining why, why it is that we chose the ESV. There's a lot of English translations, a lot of good translations. Why do we uh, select that one? We'll talk about that next week. And next week is also when we're going to make the switch to the ESV. So if you don't have a physical copy, there are some on the back table. Uh, feel free to pick one up if you would like. I got kind of an assortment there, so you can look at those. But today is a bit of prolegomena, if you will, uh, setting up what we're going to be talking about next week. So, to start at the beginning, Scripture was written by about 40 human authors over a span of roughly 1,500 years. Uh, the Old Testament was written almost entirely in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. Now, the actual scroll that Isaiah, for instance, wrote the book of Isaiah on uh, has long since been lost. We do not have it. Uh, the, the piece of papyri that Paul wrote the book of Romans on is no longer in existence. So we do not have what is known as the original autographs, uh, meaning the actual you know, papers or scrolls or things that were written on. Uh, what we have are copies of the original. So here's an image of this uh, to illustrate. And this is not technically super accurate because we don't necessarily have even direct copies of the original. Uh, so this might be more accurate. Pardon my terrible Photoshop, Malachi. Um, and if the screen was bigger, we could keep going with this. What we have are copies of copies of copies of the original uh, writings of the apostles. So when Paul wrote the book of Romans, for instance, he sent that letter to the church at Rome, and someone sat down and made a copy of that letter so that when the original started to wear away and the ink started to fade, uh, the contents of the book were preserved in another copy. And this process continued from the original writing of the New Testament books 2,000 years ago all the way until uh, really the invention of the printing press about 500 years ago. So for those 1,500 years, uh, this process took place where a copy was made of the original, probably many copies were made of the original, of course it wasn't just one, uh, and then those copies were copied and those copies were copied and so the New Testament books were handed down from one generation to the next through that process. Now this leads to a problem. Because unlike the original authors of the Bible, the scribes who copied the books of the Bible were not working under inspiration. So they made mistakes. Uh, they made the same types of mistakes that you would make if you went home today and, and copied uh, the book of Matthew, for instance, in English, just wrote it out, uh, looking at it you know, right next to you and copied it, you would make mistakes, I can assure you. Uh, you would skip a line, you would add a phrase, you would misspell something, there would be mistakes in your copy. And so sometimes scribes uh, accidentally skipped words or phrases. Sometimes they copied a line down twice on accident. Uh, sometimes they misspelled words that would change in Greek the gender or tense, which sometimes can affect the meaning of the word. And sometimes scribes intentionally changed the words. Those would be in the minority, but there are some places like that. Uh, the Old Testament is less problematic because the Jews were very careful with their copying process, at least for a uh, a long period of time, the transmission was very stable. Uh, I think I mentioned this before, that the Jews of the Masoretic tradition would uh, copy their original text, and then they would 
cross-check it, count every word, count every letter. If there was any difference, they would burn the copy. That's how meticulous they were. In their, can you imagine getting done copying the entire you know, book of Isaiah, and then you're one letter off, so you've got to start all over again. Um, but, but it's good that they were that meticulous, because what we have are very accurate copies of the Old Testament. The New Testament, uh, what's that? Right, that would make you really pay attention and, and look over two or three times before you went to the next word. Um, so the Old Testament was, uh, the, the Jews did a remarkable job of handing down the Old Testament accurately. So there's not much debate there. Uh, if you read a modern translation of the Old Testament versus the King James, you know, 400 years ago, there's virtually zero difference. I think there's maybe six variants or something. I mean, a tiny percentage uh, in the Old Testament. The New Testament is much more problematic. Uh, from the very beginning of Christianity, the church was persecuted and often hiding from the Roman government. So it was illegal uh, for large periods of time to have copies of the Bible. Uh, so books of the Bible would be snuck from one church to another, and someone would make a copy of it for their underground church to have. And because there were all sorts of different people, not necessarily just professional scribes, uh, who were hand-copying these books, there were many mistakes made. There's about six differences, uh, between six and ten differences per chapter for even the two closest Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Okay, so there are many, many textual variants. A textual variant is simply a place where the manuscripts disagree. So if one manuscript says, uh, God so loved the world, and the other one says, for God so loved the world, that would be an example of a textual variant, anywhere where there is a difference. Um, so that is the bad news. The scribes made mistakes. And when you look at a Greek manuscript of the New Testament, there will be errors in it. Uh, there's no perfect manuscript that was perfectly copied or anything like that. Part of this is because Greek is a very complex language, and part of it is because the process of copying by hand, of course, is very difficult. Like I said, if you go home and uh, try to write word for word the book of Matthew, you're going to make mistakes, even in English. Uh, Greek is far more complex. And originally, um, the Greek New Testament was written in uh, an older form of Greek called Magiscule, school, which is uh, all capital letters, no spaces between words, no punctuation. So it's just a string of capital Greek letters. And it's very tricky to even read it. Go ahead. I don't know. But as the language developed, they, they decided we need to have spaces, we need to have punctuation, we need to have capital and small letters. Um, so those things developed over time. Go ahead. So if I can have it, they read it without uh, any punctuation. It's very tricky. Um, I can't even read magical Greek. It's so different than normal Greek. When I look at it, I just get confused. Because, it, I mean, trying to send a text message with no spaces, no punctuation, all capital letters, just a string of capital, it's very hard to figure out. You have to look at it for a while. Um, it could, yes. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess if you grow up that way, you're used to it, and it, I'm sure it's easier for them. But, I mean, Hebrew is even harder. Hebrew doesn't have vowels. <laughs> I mean, the vowels are implied. Um, I, I don't even know how to explain that, but it, it's just very complex languages. So those other um, things like, you know, capital and small letters, punctuation marks, spaces, those came later. Uh, when people, I guess, started to think, well, this is dumb, and so they added things like that to improve the language a bit. 
Um, but imagine how difficult it would be to copy manuscript where it's just a string of capital letters. Very easy to lose your place. Um, and so anyway, we'll talk about some of those things when I show some, um, some examples. So uh, a little bit more bad news before we get to the good news. Uh, one of the problems with hand copying manuscripts and passing down books to uh, subsequent generations is that errors tend to multiply over time. Meaning if I copy the original book of Romans, for instance, and I made 30 errors in my copying, and then I gave it to Catherine and she copied my copy, she would not only make errors, but she would also be copying my original errors. Does that make sense? So each copy is getting further and further from the original in many cases. Um, now you can try to correct the errors, but only if you know that it's an error. A lot of times people wouldn't necessarily know. And so... Um, you know, again, if I made 30 mistakes, let's say Catherine made 30 of her own and copied my mistakes, now you've got 60. And then Malachi copies it and it, it continues to get uh, worse and worse. So a mistake made early in the copying process can mess up future generations of copies. Now, what we have today is thousands of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that have been discovered. They're kept in uh, monasteries and museums and libraries all over the world. Some are as early as the second century, which would be just a few copies removed from the original. Some are as late as the 16th century, which would be many copies removed from the original. Uh, in total, there are around 5,800 Greek manuscripts that cover some part of the New Testament. So some of those would be the entire New Testament. Some of them would be a few books. Uh, many of them would be the four Gospels. Those were copied uh, more than the other books. Um, some of them would be just one book or even a fragment of a book. So it might be a piece of paper with three chapters of Luke on it. That would count as a manuscript. So here's an example um, of one of the best preserved Greek texts of the New Testament. This is Codex Sinaiticus. You may have heard of this. It's also known as Aleph. Um, one of the most important Greek manuscripts that we have. Uh, you can see that it's, it's written very neatly. It was definitely done by a professional scribe. And uh, it was copied from around 330 to 350 A.D., which makes this the oldest copy of the entire New Testament in Greek. That's why this manuscript is so important. It is by far the oldest copy uh, that we have of the entire New Testament. It also contains some Old Testament books as well. Uh, but this is a very rare find, to have something that is this legible, uh, this old, and it contains the entire New Testament. Here's an example of some other manuscripts, and this is... Uh, there's many more that are like this. This is P46, uh, which means it's just the 46th papyri uh, to be discovered. P papyri, I won't get into all of that. But uh, this particular manuscript dates to around 200 AD, so roughly uh, 140 years maybe from the original writing. It contains portions of Philippians and Colossians. And so this is an example of one of the oldest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. P52, which I don't have an image of, is the absolute oldest. Um, it dates to possibly the late first century. Um, so they date it between 90 and 140 AD, so there's a little window there. Um, but well within 100 years of the original writing, maybe even within 50 years. And it, it contains a few verses of the book of John. Now, P52 is about the size of a credit card. <laughs> um, so there's not a whole lot on it because, you know, these manuscripts tend to be deteriorated. So anyway, go ahead. So what is that on? Don't speak. Uh, papyrus. So papyrus, the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament are written on papyri, which is made from uh, papyrus reeds that grew in the Nile River in Egypt. Um, and basically, it's similar to paper, sort of. It was a plant that they would make into a paper-type material. Um, so that was the original, like the oldest, the original books of the New Testament were written on papyrus. 
And so for the first couple of centuries, you have these papyrus um, copies. And then later on, animal skins were used. So I don't know exactly when that took place, but there was a transition there. So the later manuscripts are written on parchments, which are basically sheeps or goats that are, their skins are stretched out, scraped all the flesh off, and that's how they made their paper. So this, these are the oldest, are the papyrus manuscripts. Okay, so there are, um, so, so anyway, this would be an example. The papyri manuscripts would be an example. They lasted about 100 years um, on average before they would wear out and not be legible. So this could theoretically uh, be a direct copy of the original or something like P52 certainly could be. Um, it may be, it may not be, but it's certainly very few copies removed from the original writings. Now, there are about, like I said, 5,800 Greek manuscripts that cover some or all of the New Testament. And that number keeps changing because ancient manuscripts are discovered all the time. Just a few years ago, there were more discovered. Um, it's a regular thing that excavations are made. They discover more manuscripts, and then those are analyzed by papyrologists and cataloged. It's a process that goes on. Um, but we are still discovering new manuscripts all the time. So as those get discovered, the number goes up. And then also sometimes what happens is a manuscript in Berlin is compared to a manuscript in South Africa or something in a museum, and you realize there are two pieces of the same original piece of papyrus. And so the number goes back down because those are technically one manuscript. Um, so the numbers kind of keep fluctuating like that. But there are roughly 5,800 Greek manuscripts. Um, the New Testament also was copied in Latin and Coptic and Syriac, other languages, um, throughout really from the very start of Christianity. So if you, if you include those, we would have tens of thousands of copies. There's over 10,000 just in Latin. Um, but since Greek was the original writing of the New Testament, these are what people pay most attention to. Now, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the nature of these differences, the textual variants. Uh, some skeptics of Christianity will claim that there are hundreds of thousands of textual variants. That scribes made so many errors, you really have no idea uh, what the original autograph said. That is extremely misleading. Um, it is true that there are hundreds of thousands of textual variants among the 5,800 Greek manuscripts, but the majority of those are spelling errors. Uh, Greek is a very complex language, so it's very difficult to copy accurately. And if you spell a word wrong, that would count as a textual variant. Uh, one good example of this I mentioned before was uh, the movable new, which is the, it's the letter new that goes in front of some words, depending on if the next one starts with a vowel. It's a little bit of a weird grammatical rule, sort of like us today with A and Ann. I think I mentioned that. Uh, I have a book or an apple. If I say I have an book, that's not right grammatically, but it doesn't change the meaning. You know exactly what I'm saying. And, and in some cases, the movable new, uh, the rules of grammar changed over the early years of Christianity about how to use that. So that would be an example of a textual variant that changes absolutely nothing. It doesn't change a thing in the translation of the word. And that is, the movable new itself actually makes up the majority of the textual variants. So when people throw out this 400,000 variant number, just understand 75% of those are spelling errors uh, that are not even translatable into English. So that would be the, uh, the vast majority of those. There are also differences in word order. So in Greek, you can say the sentence, Jesus loves Paul, and you could rearrange those words in any order, and it would not change the meaning of the sentence. It doesn't work in English. If you say Paul loves Jesus, that means something very different than Jesus loves Paul in English. In Greek, you can do it no problem, because uh, the spellings of the word determine their, their use in the sentence. So basically... Um, Take the word Paul, for example. If Paul 
were the subject, the, um, the subject of the sentence, it would be spelled Paulos. If he were the recipient of the action, it would be Paulon. There's a, a change in the spelling of the word. So the word order doesn't determine the function of the word in Greek. Does that make sense? I don't know if that was clear or not. I don't know how to explain that um, better. But that would be an example, again, of a textual variant that does not change anything. Um, whatever order you put it in. All it does, in some cases, it will emphasize a word if you put it ahead of word order, um, but it does not change the meaning. Another example of meaningless variance would be uh, the way proper names in Greek sometimes have uh, an article in front of them, sometimes they don't. It doesn't change anything. Uh, it translates exactly the same, but that would be another textual variant. So when you hear about all the scribal errors, just understand the vast majority of them change nothing, and they cannot even be translated into English. Malachi? I do not. Uh, what do you, I'm sorry, are you saying like specific verses that would have differences? Okay, so the, the biggest one is the movable new, which is that letter, our equivalent would be N. It goes in front of certain words depending on um, if, if it starts with a vowel or not. It doesn't change anything. It's kind of an irrelevant... I mean, I don't know why we have a difference between A and AN. There's really no reason for it. I guess it sounds better or something. Um, so that's, that would be one. The scribes mess that up all the time. Um, and then you would have differences in word order, which so long as the spellings are the same, doesn't change anything. Um, you could put loves Jesus Paul, and it would still mean the same thing if, if you had the endings correctly spelled. Um, and then there would be spelling errors that aren't translatable. So, um, and those are common even today. I was reading this week um, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, the Kindle version, and I noticed probably 10 spelling errors in that book. It's not a big book, but there's still spelling errors today that you look at it and you know what they meant. You know, it's obvious that this was just a typo. Um, so if you see they children of Israel, you know that they meant to put the children of Israel. They accidentally put Y and autocorrect didn't catch it. Um, so those types of things happen with the manuscripts as well, where there's just a word that's misspelled. That counts as a textual variant, even though it doesn't change anything. And it's you know obvious what was, what was meant. Um, so those would be some of the examples. Uh, and then I mentioned also the article in front of proper names. So you could say in Greek, and this wouldn't be translated into English, but you can say, um, I don't know how to explain this. Uh, before a proper name like Paul, Sometimes you would put the article, like ton, which is like the, before Paul. It doesn't get translated, but that's kind of an optional thing. You don't have to do it, and it doesn't change anything. So, All right, so there, those are some examples. Those are the vast majority of variants. Now, there are some textual variants that do change the translation. There are places in the New Testament where some manuscripts say one thing, another manuscript says another thing, and it does make a difference. Uh, these are not every other word, but they do exist. There are also places where a phrase or sentence is absent in some manuscripts and present in others, meaning it was either added or deleted somewhere in the copying process. And this leads us to textual criticism. A textual critic is one who compares the various manuscripts to try to ascertain what the original reading was. And there are textual critics that study all ancient Greco-Roman literature, not just the Bible. Uh, if you're reading Homer's Iliad, there are textual variants all throughout Homer's Iliad. And people study this to try to figure out what the original Iliad said. So it's the same thing. Uh, but with the New Testament, 
this is what takes place. I'm going to try to give you a brief history of textual criticism, hopefully to explain uh, some of the, the controversy about which manuscripts should be used. Now, it's way more complicated than this, what I'm going to show you. Uh, textual criticism is one of the most, in my opinion, mind-numbingly boring subjects. Um, I studied it a couple of years ago just to understand it myself, and I hated it. Uh, but I'll try to just simplify it and, and give you some of the main points to understand. I made this chart um, to help, hopefully, I know it's not exactly to scale, forgive me, there should be a little more distance between the last two numbers, but uh, just to fit everything on here. Where we need to start is with Desiderius Erasmus. Erasmus was a Roman Catholic priest who lived around the time of the uh, invention of the printing press. And so he had half a dozen hand-copied manuscripts of the New Testament in his possession. All of them were uh, 10th century or later. So all of them were about a thousand years or more removed from the original. So very late copies. But that's just what he had in his, in his possession. So he compared those copies to one another and tried to figure out what's the original readings here and what are the, what are the errors. That's what textual criticism is, where you're comparing those manuscripts, seeing the differences, and trying to figure out what the original reading was. And so he published his first critical edition of the Greek New Testament in 1516. Uh, and this was the first ever published and printed Greek New Testament. Uh, so, in other words, the New Testament was handed down by, you know, hand copying for the first 1500 years. Now you have the printing press. And so this was the very first printed and published Greek New Testament that people could have. And after that, the text gets much more stable because printing obviously is a much more accurate way of copying than by hand. Now, Erasmus admits that he was rushed uh, to get this to the publisher and he made many errors. Um, and so he decided he would make a second edition of it to, to fix some of these errors. And in total, throughout his life, he actually revised his text four times. So there were five editions of the Greek New Testament made by Desiderius Erasmus. And this was by comparing the manuscripts he had, trying to figure out what the original readings were. And where he wasn't sure, he would leave annotations with the information he had for both readings. So sometimes he would say, there's a variant here, I'm not sure which reading to go with. He would give you a few options there and just say, I'm not sure, here's some evidence on both sides. After Erasmus died, a man named Robert Estian, also known as Robertus Stephanos, uh, came out with a few editions of his own, and he was basically editing Erasmus's work. So he took Desiderius Erasmus's Greek New Testament, and he compared it with a few other manuscripts that he had, and, and made some changes that he thought Erasmus had, had made mistakes. Uh, by the way, his 1551 edition uh, is where you get the verse divisions in the New Testament. You do not have verse divisions until Robert Stephanos. Um, so what that means, well, there's a few implications there, but just understand that as we go along. Uh, there, when, when you look up, you know, John 3.16 now, we all know what that is. But if prior to Stephanos, there was no 16. It would have said John 3. You had chapters, but no verse numbers. Um, and so in those verse numbers that he put in in 1551 have remained until this day. So whenever you see a new translation where they take out a verse because it wasn't original and they, they found that out due to textual criticism, they'll take the number out. That's not a problem because those verse numbers weren't original. That's something that somebody in the 1500s came up with. So we'll explain that more as we go along. Uh, next comes Theodore Beza. He edited Stephanos's work, which itself was a revision of Erasmus's work. And so he continued doing more, more research. He had more manuscripts to compare. And so there were some places where he thought they had gotten it wrong, and so he tweaked the text a little bit more. 
Then in 1611, you have the King James Version of the Bible published. Uh, there were about seven English Bibles um, prior to the KJV. So you have you know, the Bishop's Bible, the Geneva Bible, the Great Bible, some of those. Uh, but the King James really set the standard for a long time because it was, it was far better translated than those earlier ones. Uh, it was done by a committee of men, I think 49, um, really of the, of the leading scholars in England. And the King James Version was based, the New Testament was based on these three men's Greek New Testaments. So their published editions were, were compared to one another, and the, and the translators made decisions about which ones uh, to go with at, at certain readings. Um, now, there were places where they also were not sure what the originals were. So the King James translators didn't act like they just knew everything and, oh, we've got it. No, they, they put in the margins of the note. I'll show you this later. Some places where they just didn't know what the original reading was. There were a couple of options, and so they would say things like, some manuscripts read this instead of what we put in the text. Now, the work of textual criticism did not stop when the King James was translated. Just a few years later, uh, Abraham and uh, Bonaventure Elsevier published another edition of the Greek New Testament, 1633, which was a continuation of these other men's works. And that's actually where the phrase textus receptus comes from. Uh, textus receptus is a phrase that comes from 1633, so years after the King James. Uh, it was basically an advertising blurb that they put in the preface of their New Testament saying, this is the received text. It was, it was an advertisement in Latin. And so that name kind of stuck uh, to that, that particular manuscript family. Now, um, I'm going to skip some things here. We're running out of time. Uh, let's see. But let me just make this point first. The King James was based on very few late Greek manuscripts. So that's an important thing to understand. The King James Version, the New Testament, was based on manuscripts that were copied a thousand years after the original writings. So there were many, er I shouldn't say many, there were definitely some errors uh, in, in the copying process that were then inserted into uh, the King James New Testament. Now, in the 1800s, many more Greek manuscripts of the New Testament were discovered uh, that were far earlier copies. And this has continued, you know, like I said, even to today. Um, over the last roughly 200 years, we've discovered, I mean, thousands of Greek manuscripts, some of them that date back to, like I said, either late first century or certainly second century. Um, so the difference between a second century copy of the New Testament and a 12th century, which is what you know, the King James is mostly based on, you can see there would be a big difference there uh, because you're talking about one that's very close to the original and one that's many copies removed. And uh, I'm going to, again, I'm going to need to skip some things here, but just uh, before we get to some of the textual critical rules, let me just say um, there are many Greek scholars today that do this for a living, uh, that study the Greek manuscripts. Uh, again, there's 5,800 of them. Nobody has access to all of them necessarily, but there's people that travel around the world looking at these manuscripts and trying to decide what the original readings were. And so um, we're going to look at a few of the criteria they look for when determining which variant is an error and which one is the original. Uh, first is to look at which reading is the oldest. And that makes sense. Suppose we had a, a classroom of 100 people. We gave them the book of James to copy. And we gave it to 25 of them. It said, copy down the book of James. Just, just stick with English for now. Um, they would make mistakes, certainly. And then the next, let's say we had 25 more kids copy what they had just made. And then 25 more copy their copy. And you keep going like that. If you wanted to figure out what the original was, the obvious place to start is with those original 25 copies. You don't want to start with the four copies removed. You want to start with the closest to the original because those would have 
less errors. And so generally speaking, uh, the first generation of copies is going to be closer to the original readings because it's only you know, one copy removed instead of 100. Uh, the last copies are going to have more errors because, again, like we mentioned before, uh, the copyists are copying the errors of the previous copyist, and so they tend to multiply that way. Uh, maybe you've maybe heard the game Telephone, where you have a line of kids and they whisper a message in their ear, and then at the end it's totally different. Uh, that's kind of the idea. So the closer you get to the original message, the more accurate it will likely be. So textual critics pay special attention to the oldest manuscripts, assuming that because they are closer to the original writings, uh, they will likely be more accurate copies than something that's a thousand years removed from the original writing. Another principle of textual criticism is to go with the reading that best explains the rise of the others. Uh, let me sh uh, show you an example of this. Uh, this is 1 John 5.13, famous verse, right? These things I've written unto you, which believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Uh, do you notice something weird about this verse? Anybody? Yeah, the one line is repeated twice. Okay, this is an example where a copyist accidentally copied the line a second time. Um, in fact, the verse doesn't make sense the way it's written here. He's writing to people who believe on the name of the Son of God that they may believe on the name of the Son of God. That doesn't make sense. Um, this is just an example where a copyist accidentally, and you've maybe done this before, if you copy a large, uh, I don't know, how many of you have ever, ever copied like a decent-sized project? Anybody? Okay, my parents used to make me copy verses all the time, so this was a, one of my punishments as a kid. I don't know if that's normal for people to copy, though. But if you do, it's very easy to accidentally, your eye skips back and you copy the same line twice. And that's what happened here. So if you look this up in a modern translation, it'll just say, this is the ESV, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, which makes perfect sense. John is writing this book uh, to Christians so that they can have assurance of their salvation. And this is what... The earliest manuscripts of the New Testament say the later manuscripts, which the King James was based on, have the line included there twice. Um, and so somewhere along the copying process, it was copied, uh, repeated a second time. Now, again, this is not to bash uh, the King James translators. They were doing the best they could with the information they had. Uh, but all they had access to were these late manuscripts. And so uh, that's why these, these types of errors were included. Another common scribal error is what's known as homeotelluton. Um, sorry, I'm expanding your vocabulary a bit. That just means similar endings. Uh, basically when, well, let me show you an example. 1 John 3, 1. Um, let's see here. Okay, the top version is the King James. Underneath is the ESV. So, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. ESV, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So you notice those last couple of words are not in the King James. Um, so the ESV, there's that additional phrase, and so we are, which is missing in the King James. Why is there a difference? Uh, well, the oldest manuscripts of 1 John have the phrase. The later manuscripts do not have it. So somewhere along the line, it got skipped over. And the reason it did... Um, is very easy to see, even if you don't read Greek. I'm going to put Greek on the screen. Don't freak out here, okay? Uh, the underlined part is what is in question here, and so we are. It comes from those two words, chiasmic. Um, do you notice any reason why this might be skipped? Why you might accidentally skip those last two words? Yeah. I don't know if this is clear or not, okay? Look at the endings of Clethomen and Esnath. 
Notice they both end with mu epsilon nu. Okay, this is known as homeoteleuton. Um, when, you're, when you're copying something and you have two words with very similar endings, it's easy for your eye to skip to the wrong word. When you, when you, you, know, you put the, your ink on the paper and then you look back and you're not at the right space. And again, uh, the original Greek text was all caps, no spaces, no punctuation. So this would be even easier to do. Let me show you what this looks like originally. Um, you see Clayfelman, Kai Esman. You have the men here and the men here. Very easy for someone to skip those five letters in between. Uh, is that five or six? I don't know, however many letters. And to accidentally skip to the end of the wrong word. So does that make sense? Uh, that's an example of a very common error that was made in the tradition. Um, when you compare manuscripts, you'll see this type of thing all the time. Homeoteleuton is the fancy Latin word for it. There you go. <laughs> so, all right, we're going to look at a couple more reasons for textual variance. Uh, first is marginal notes. Sometimes a scribe added a note next to the text he was copying, and the next scribe to copy his copy didn't know if this was a part of the text that he had accidentally missed or if it was a commentary on the text. Uh, here's an example of this. This is not uh, Greek. This is Hebrew. I think this is Isaiah. I'm not sure. Um, but notice here, there's some places where there's marginal notes there. Um, you can see one right here that goes like this and then down <laughs> this side of the page uh, where a scribe either accidentally skipped a line and so he went back and just kind of, maybe you've done this before, where you write it on top and squeeze it in there. Uh, or this could be a commentary on the text, something explaining the text. And so if you're copying this manuscript, do you include it or not? Uh, it's kind of a judgment call. Here's some more examples of this. Um, this, you can see, clearly was written with a different pen than the original. Um, so this would have been a later addition to the text. Again, is this somewhere where a scribe is correcting, saying you missed a line? Or is this an explanatory note? Very difficult to tell. I'm really running out of time here, but let's... Uh, let me show you an example of this. Luke 23, I will therefore chastise him and release him, for of necessity he must release one of them at the feast. And they cried out, uh, cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, release unto us Barabbas. Now, verse 17, that parenthetical statement there, is not found in the oldest manuscripts. It is found in later manuscripts. So this is an example where most the likely explanation is, this was an explanatory note, uh, explaining why it was that Pilate was talking about releasing one of them. Because it, he's, the scribe is explaining, at the feast day, this was the traditional thing to do, was to release a prisoner. Uh, and so that would be an example of an explanatory marginal note that a later scribe thought was a part of the text. And so it became a part of, of the New Testament in that way. A similar thing, Luke 17.36, uh, two men shall be taken in the field. The one shall, uh, two men shall be in the field, sorry. The one shall be taken and the other left. Uh, this is, again, not found in the modern translations because it's not found in the oldest manuscripts. Now, it is found in Matthew and Mark's account. So this is an example. This is very common in textual criticism where somebody copying Luke's gospel uh, will put in a phrase that is not in Luke, but it is in Matthew and Mark in a parallel account. So they'll put it in here um, and insert it into the text in that way. Now, what's interesting about this particular case is the KJV translators back in 1611 knew that this verse had very little manuscript support. So they put a marginal note. Uh, this is a photocopy. I have a, a photographic uh, reproduction, basically, of the 1611. And if you look right here, it says this 36th verse is wanting in most Greek copies. So even 400 years ago, they recognized that this verse 
was likely not original, that it seems to have been added later on. Um, and so there's many places like that where one gospel is kind of harmonized with another gospel. They'll take a, a phrase that is found in Mark and they'll put it in Matthew's account, even though it's not originally in Matthew. So what we have with the New Testament, uh, one thing to point out is that scribes tended to, over, uh, over time, insert things, not delete things, which is good. Because what we have is, like in the King James New Testament, it's like having a puzzle with a hundred and, you know, a thousand piece puzzle with a thousand and twenty pieces. That's better than having 980 pieces. So it's better to have more material than less. Uh, but we do have a few extra lines there that were not original. Um, I don't know if I want to go to one more or if we want to stop there. Let's go one more. Matthew 5. This is an example of likely a purposeful change. Uh, could be a marginal note, but likely a purposeful change from a scribe. So the, the top one there is the ESV, which says, this is the oldest manuscript, say, but I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The King James says, but I say unto you that every, uh, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. So there would be an example where a scribe likely was trying to explain the statement of Jesus, make it a little more palatable. Um, and again, this could have been a marginal note that somebody accidentally copied, but it seems to me it's likely that this was a purposeful change to make it a little easier to stomach. Um, so there are, there are cases like this uh, where scribes made these types of mistakes. Now, I know um, we've gone over a lot of information. I just want to give you a little bit of perspective as we close here. What we're talking about with textual variants is a very small percentage of the Bible. This is not like every other verse is in question. Uh, if, if you use a good modern translation, they agree 99.9% .9 on the text of the Bible. Uh, meaning if you, if you were to look this up in the ESV, the NASB, the NIV, all three say the same thing. They all say they don't have that phrase without cause because textual critics know that this was added later on in the tradition. Uh, the King James does have more of these types of errors because it was made uh, 400 years ago based on the very few and late manuscripts that they had available at the time. So that's really a lot of the differences uh, there. Uh, here's another chart, just a timeline of English Bible translations to kind of give you an idea. Uh, you had, again, seven English. I put seven-ish because it, Tyndale didn't have exactly the entire Bible translated. Wycliffe was from the Latin. So depending on if you count those, there's about seven that precede the King James as far as English uh, translations of the Bible. And then you have the Revised Version, the ASV, the RSV. Those kind of came about uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And now, of course, with the, the discovery of the papyri over the last hundred years, that really has changed textual criticism. Um, because we have access to so much earlier information, now you have this explosion of new translations based on those earlier Greek texts. So that, uh, that would be, let's see here. Well, we are out of time. I do want to show this video, though. So we might just start the next service a little bit late. I want to show this because I think it does a good job of explaining, uh, explaining textual variation. Let's look at this one. Can we trust the New Testament as a reliable document? Many skeptics say no, and that it is based on dated copies and filled with errors. But what does the evidence say? Christians for centuries have pointed to the evidence that we can trust the New Testament as reliable to what it originally said. So what evidence can we offer? Well, when it comes to an ancient document, the more manuscripts we have, the better. That way there is more to cross-check for accuracy and identify changes that may have happened through the process known as textual criticism. 
so we would obviously want more to compare with, so we can get back to the original. So what do we have of the New Testament? Of the original language of the New Testament, we've over 5,800 Greek manuscripts. In Latin, we've over 10,000 manuscripts. In various other languages, we have between 5,000 and 10,000 manuscripts. So we have an extremely wide variety of New Testament manuscripts from across the ancient world we can study and compare. And with more manuscripts, the more accurate we will be at reconstructing the original through textual criticism. But even if we didn't have any manuscripts, we would still have the entire New Testament preserved in the writings of the Church Fathers. It is estimated there are over 1 million New Testament quotes in the Church Fathers alone. If there was a large amount of intentional or accidental corruption of the text, then it would be easy to trace by comparing manuscripts of different regions. There was never a time when any one man or group of men had control over the text of the New Testament. There was never a Christian Uthman. All assertions regarding adding doctrines, changing theology, removing teachings, etc. are without merit. The Christian church was a persecuted minority without power to enforce a uniform textual transmission, as in Islam. This is far more than any other ancient document. The second most widely attested would be Homer's Iliad, with only 1,757 copies, and then Suetonius with around 200 copies. So if one is still skeptical of the New Testament, after knowing of how widely attested it is, then they should be even more skeptical of other ancient works. As scholar Dan Wallace says, They have never thought about this other ancient literature and reflecting on what that would be like. If I'm going to be skeptical about the New Testament, and I apply that skepticism to other ancient Greco-Roman literature, guess what? We immediately go back into the Dark Ages. We've eclipsed all knowledge in the last 500 years. But not only do we have a large amount of manuscripts, but we have very early complete manuscripts, and even earlier fragments. The oldest complete New Testament is within 300 years of the original, the closest of any ancient document. But we have even earlier witnesses and fragments, like this one, P52, from between 90 AD to 125 AD, and others like these, from approximately 170 AD to 220 AD. We also have a larger fragment, from around this time in P75, which has 102 survived pages from Luke and John. Comparing this to other ancient documents, the earliest copy of the Iliad is far off with 500 years from its original, and Suetonius is 800 years from its original. As you can see, the New Testament is by far the closest to its original than any other ancient document. So if we are to be skeptical of the New Testament, then we should be even more skeptical of other ancient literature. In fact, we have about a dozen fragmented manuscripts dating to around the 2nd century, which represent about 40% of the entire New Testament, and we have 120 manuscripts around 300 years from the original, which is incredible compared to other ancient documents. But despite this, some scholars still argue the New Testament copies are too late and full of errors. The leading critic Bart Ehrman says, Not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the original, or copies of copies of copies of the originals. What we have are copies made later, much later, and these copies all differ from one another in many thousands of places. Well, this seems like an odd thing to say, given the evidence we just discussed. So let's divide his objection into two parts and deal with each appropriately. The first is that our earliest manuscripts are extremely far off from the originals, not even copies of copies of copies of the originals. Well, this doesn't make sense, considering our earliest fragment is within 70 years or less of the original, and several larger fragments are around 150 years from the original. So why would these not be first or second generation copies of the originals? A papyrus manuscript in public use will last on average for more than 100 years. There is also no reason to assume the originals or first generation copies were copied once and thrown away or lost. 
In fact, Ehrman even acknowledges that a manuscript can likely be a direct copy of one from a hundred years prior to it. Every time somebody translates the Bible, they don't say, well, I've got to take this manuscript that I translated from and destroy that now. That's stupid. We don't do that. It's never been done in the history of the church. There is no reason to assume the originals were just copied once and forgotten, or that scribes only had one copy to pull from. In fact, early church father Tertullian even seems to suggest the originals were still around when he was writing at the end of the second century. Come now, you who would indulge a better curiosity. If you would apply it to the business of your salvation, run over to the apostolic churches, in which the very thrones of the apostles are still preeminent in their places, in which their own authentic writings are read. The Latin word for authentic normally refers to original documents, so it appears Tertullian is saying the originals were still in the churches to that day. He specifically refers to the letters of Corinthians, Philippians, Thessalonians, Ephesians, and Romans, and urges readers to visit these places to see the authentic writings for themselves. Even if Tertullian didn't mean the original scrolls the apostles wrote on, his testimony still tells us the Christians in his days were concerned with having accurate writings and they were not discarding their copies as valueless, as skeptics suggest. And it's reasonable to suggest that if the manuscripts were read often, they were also copied often. And in fact, the amount of manuscripts we have today obviously suggests that. Ehrman's reasoning seems to imply New Testament copying was like a game of telephone, where a 4th century copy is a copy from one from a 3rd century, which in turn is a copy of one from the 2nd century, which is a copy of one from the 1st century, which was a copy of the original. But there is no reason to suggest the originals or the first copies were simply lost after they were copied once. Scribes could always go back to the earliest copies of their day that had survived and simply copy that. St. Arrhenius even testifies he had access to some of the earliest copies of the Book of Revelations, suggesting early copies were being preserved for accuracy and transmission. And the testimony of early church fathers indicates how sacred they consider these documents. So they were not carelessly being copied, but being held in high regard to preserve the faith passed down from the apostles. In fact, scholars Daryl Bach and Dan Wallace note the earliest manuscripts we have probably go back to around 100 AD. Two of the oldest manuscripts we have, Papyrus 75 or P75 and Codex Vaticanus or B, have an exceptionally strong agreement, and they are among the most accurate manuscripts that exist today. P75 is about 125 years older than B, yet it is not an ancestor of B. Instead, B was copied from an earlier manuscript of P75. See the detailed work of C.L. Porter. The combination of these two manuscripts, in a particular reading, must surely go back to the very beginning of the second century. So the idea that our copies are far too late doesn't stand up to evidence, and textual criticism demonstrates we are not too far off from the originals. So what about Ehrman's other claim, that all other manuscripts have much variation and differ from one another in thousands of places? Ehrman and other skeptics will usually throw out the fact that there are 400,000 variants across New Testament manuscripts, which is in fact true. However, when you look at the details, this isn't a big deal. For example, the reason we have so many variants is because we have so many manuscripts. That would be expected with such a high number of manuscripts. But even with that, remember we have close to 6,000 New Testament Greek manuscripts, which comes to about 2.6 million pages of New Testament. If you do the math, that is one variant per six and a half pages. Not really that much. Second, what kinds of variants are there? Well, 75% of them are simply spelling errors, which do not affect the meaning of the text. 15% are variation in Greek synonyms and transpositions, which cannot even be translated. About 9% do affect the meaning of the text, 
but they are from very late documents, and obviously resolved by looking at earlier manuscripts. Then, less than 1% do actually affect the meaning of the text and are from early manuscripts, but none of these variants actually challenge or affect essential Christian doctrines, as Bart Ehrman even admits. The position I argue for in misquoting Jesus does not actually stand at odds with Professor Metzger's position that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. This is the guy on whose works Muslims and atheists are basing their wild claims that the Orthodox have so corrupted the text that it must not have been Orthodox at all originally. They don't know what they're talking about, but they're basing it on Dr. Ehrman's work he does know what he's talking about. I happen to disagree with him about a number of things, but I don't disagree with him over this. In fact, in our three debates, at the end of each debate, I say, by the way, I think you agree with me, Bart, that essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants. And I put this screen up. He's never disputed it. He, he said it. It's in print. He can't deny himself. There's absolutely no evidence to suggest Christian doctrines are affected by variants in the manuscripts and there is next to zero evidence to suggest we cannot get back to the originals. In fact, given all the evidence, there are only 40 lines of the New Testament unresolved by textual criticism, giving it an accuracy of 99.5%, which by far is the best of any ancient document. Now obviously, there is still debate over what a handful of passages were originally, and no Christian scholar argues we have exactly word for word what the original authors wrote. But in light of this evidence, we should also avoid radical skepticism that we can certainly never know anything of what the original authors wrote. It simply doesn't stand up to evidence. The overwhelming amount of scriptural passages aren't even debated, and there is no textual evidence that threatens the origins of essential Christian doctrines. So is the New Testament reliable? The obvious answer is yes, and we have barely scratched the surface of evidence. The onus is on the skeptic. The New Testament sets the standard in providing clear evidence of its trustworthiness. If that is not enough, is it possible the skeptic has set a standard that is unreasonable? And if so, why? All right, we are way over time here, so we got to get going. I know there's probably questions from that. Um, if you have questions, come Wednesday night. We'll talk about this more. Um, but I hope, I don't know, was that video helpful? That explained things better? Okay, good. Uh, but anyway, so that, that gives you kind of an introduction into textual criticism and uh, some of the, some of the uh, that's the word I'm looking for, the claims that skeptics make about Christianity. If you have more questions about this, Greg Gilbert's book explains uh, this kind of in an overview um, about textual criticism. Very simple, very easy to, to understand. If you want to really go deep on this, um, it, not nearly as accessible, but Bruce Metzger's book, The Transmission, something like the, I think I have it written down here, The Transmission of the New Testament. Um, it's actually, it's interesting, it's co-authored by Bart Ehrman. Uh, back before he became an agnostic. So you have a, a radical skeptic and one of the leading textual critics of the 20th century that co-authored this book, and it's very good. Um, so that would be another uh, resource. Also, Dan Wallace and James White, they were both in that video. Uh, they speak in layman's terms about these issues, so you don't have to know Greek or anything to look up some of their information. Uh, they have podcasts and YouTube stuff on, on these subjects. It's uh, very helpful. So.